coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. Do what you love. When you love something, it's easy to say, I'm going to forget about everything else and focus on what you're doing. And if you have to do something you don't absolutely love, try to make yourself love it at least for a little while. Look for the positive aspects of it. Do you want to learn the tricks the top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help. Lead to Succeed picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to another episode of Lead to Succeed. Let's begin with today's interesting fact. Between 1900 and 1920, tug of war was an Olympic event. I am fascinated by this. I thought they only added Olympic events and didn't take any of them out. But today's guest probably knows a thing or two of what what it's like to be pulled from all directions. Dr. Alan Kadish is a prominent cardiologist and the president of Turo College and University System, the largest Jewish-sponsored educational institution in the United States. Alan is also the man who guided me to selecting the doctorate program that I completed last year, with Turo University Worldwide. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. You know, it's really great to talk to you because of all of your experiences and there's so much I want to get into. But actually, one thing that I didn't mention in the bio and the way that we actually got to know each other initially was I had the privilege of uh, teaching your children. And that's my background, you know, in education and sort of working through the process of of the coaching work that I do now. You know, I've had a chance to really get to know you for many, many years. And so I'm super excited to learn from you to have this conversation. And um, the first thing that jumps out at me as I'm looking at uh, your bio, which I know, of course, and and understanding your background is that you are a cardiologist. You have obviously a very strong background in medicine. And yet you're the president of a university, which for me is, is somewhat of an unusual thing. You know, you don't think of doctors typically taking on chief executive roles in educational institutions, particularly in higher education. So talk us through that a little bit. Help us understand how did you transition from your medical practice to what you're doing today? The first thing I'll say is that it was not as much of a transition as might be apparent. Like many physicians, I spent my entire career working for universities. Uh, I worked for the University of Pennsylvania, for Michigan, and for 19 years for Northwestern. So although I saw patients, it was always as a professor or administrator at a university. In addition, for example, the recently retired president of Cornell and the recently departed president of City College of New York were both physicians. So it's not as unusual as it might seem. I think there are obviously major differences, but there were some skills that I learned as a physician and professor that helped me very much in my current position. Perfect. So so talk to us a little bit about that. What were some of those skills and how did they help you do what you do today? Although it sometimes is used in a derogatory way, the ability to multitask is essential in what I do. I really have three or four different major components to my job. Those are all interlaced. And I can't say that, let's say I'm going to fundraise tomorrow and ignore everything else that happens in the university, or I'm going to work on academic administration next week and forget about the budget. One has to be able to interface different activities and really to multitask very effectively. And as an 
a physician in academic medicine, that was essentially the nature of what I did. I saw patients, I did procedures, I wrote research grants, I did research, I helped administer budgets, and I ran a research institute. And it wasn't possible to compartmentalize those activities into particular time slots, particularly when you deal with patient care. So multitasking was one of the very important skills that I learned. You know, it's interesting that you say that because right now I'm in the middle of listening to an audio book called Deep Work. Uh, The book is by Cal Newport, and he makes the argument that in order to accomplish great things, and since you're in academia as well, I think you could relate to this very deeply, that he talks about writing, um, you know, uh, academic papers or whether it's your uh, your doctoral research or anything along those lines that a person needs to be able to go deep. They need to be able to focus extensively and intently on specific things in order to get those done. And I'm sure you've had that experience and I'm sure you've tried to accomplish that. So how do you create the balance since you are trying to multitask and of course get so many things done with the ability to focus more intently and more deeply on areas that really require more than a quick yes, no, or a quick response, but something where you're really able to put yourself deeply into that task, into that area, into that focus and get the results that you want. It's a question of concentration and focus. There are no tricks. What As an academic physician, one learns early on is that if you're writing a research grant on how to cure a rhythm disturbance and a patient calls you with a problem, you have to be able to intellectually break away from that problem, deal with the patient, and then be able to refocus on on writing a research grant or a proposal very quickly. I don't think there's a magic way to do it, but it's simply a question of compartmentalizing your thoughts. And if there's a problem in one area, even if it's one you haven't completely solved, remove that from what you're thinking and go back to the original problem. And it's simply a question of understanding that that's what you have to do. You have to compartmentalize. Otherwise, you can't accomplish what you need to do and still do exactly what you said, which is the ability to deeply focus on complex issues so you can make creative contributions. Wow. So so let's uh, give our listeners, if you don't mind, one or two, or even if you have more strategies that you use specifically to compartmentalize, because people who are listening, they're obviously interested in leadership. They're interested in understanding how great leaders succeed at what they do. And they want to know, you know, what is it? I want to know, frankly, what is it that great people are doing that helps them create that focus, that compartmentalization, that attention to something specific that achieves the great results that they're able to accomplish? Do you have any specific strategies for us? So there are two. One is you have to develop some distance. And that's not necessarily a positive thing. But in other words, you may have in one area that you're dealing with a very difficult problem. And it's a problem that you haven't yet been able to solve. And it's a problem that's important that people's lives depend on, that the mission that you're trying to accomplish depends on. But you know you can't solve it at that time. You have to be able to distance yourself and say, yes, I'm intellectually and emotionally concerned about this or concerned about someone, but I'm going to take a step back and get something else done. And again, that's something where medicine was a huge help. We'd like to think patients always do well, but obviously that doesn't always happen. And if something has gone wrong with one patient, be it something that one could have done better or be it God's will, you have to be able to say, 
I understand that, but I'm going to put some distance between myself and that patient so I can see the next one. And so it's an extent, you have to develop a modest extent of emotional detachment. You don't want to do it too much because then you lose what makes us human. But you have to be able to detach from that difficult problem and focus on the next thing that you're doing. And the second piece of advice I have is not necessarily helpful because not everyone has the ability to do this, but do what you love. When you love something, it's easy to say, I'm going to forget about everything else and focus on what you're doing. And if you have to do something you don't absolutely love, try to make yourself love it at least for a little while. Look for the positive aspects of it. That was a great answer. And I would love to pick it apart a little bit more if I could, because there's so much here. And, um, you know, I've got a lot of questions I'd love to ask you, but this one really is very ripe for, I think, some additional conversation. Let's talk about the emotional detachment for a second, because I think that that part is really hard. You know, I can imagine as you're talking about it from the doctor's perspective and you're in the patient's room and you're dealing with the various issues, how hard it might be, especially when you have family and friends and concerned, you know, others around as well to be able to make that detachment, so to speak, and move on to the next thing that you need to accomplish. But let's bring it to the regular executive, you know, to somebody in a conventional work environment, and they're having whatever challenge they're dealing with, and they need to be able to separate themselves to at least get something else accomplished while they're waiting for insights, uh, whatever that is holding them back from taking decisive action on the particular issue that's troubling them. Is there anything physical, any tricks that you would recommend? You know, sometimes people talk about, for example, the idea of having like a problem hook outside your door and you kind of like hang your problem in a, in a symbolic sense, but the actual take the hand and sort of put it over the hook as an indication that you're leaving the problem there for now so that you can mentally focus elsewhere and get things done. So anything you would do that would allow you not just to make an intellectual you know, shift, so to speak, but physically or something similar that would be a trick or a a nice tactic that people could use to help them isolate one situation from everything else they need to do? That's a great question. And to be honest, it's something that I've learned to do over the past 40 years. And so I don't have any tricks to share. It's just something one has to learn how to do. And it's one of those skills that was very transportable from what I used to do, at least the part where I used to see patients, to what I do now. You can't function as a physician. You want to have empathy for your patients, but you can't function as a physician if that emotional distress paralyzes you. So you learn early on how to detach to some extent to be able to accomplish the next task. And there's never anything physical that I've associated with. So I'm not the best person to give advice about that particular tactic. Okay, that's fine. But it sounds to me that you learned this technique over time and and perhaps the situation because of the fact that you were uh, in hospitals dealing with patients on a regular basis, the idea just literally of moving from room to room and going through your checklist of various people that you needed to see and tend to, that alone created a certain degree of closure for you or a certain obligation to move on. Would that be fair? It certainly helps. Yeah. So I'm thinking maybe for for leaders as well, for people who are listening, tell me if you agree with this, that even if they 
physically moved to another space or went through their checklist or went through some type of process where they could say, okay, I still have to deal with this, but I'm going to move on to the next thing. And they can emotionally check out of space number one and shift into that second one. That's going to help them to become more focused and more present for the next item on their list. It seems like a very good way to do it if it doesn't come naturally. Got it. Now let's talk about the other one because I keep hearing different things about this. You know, people who are motivational speakers, whether it's Brian Tracy or Tony Robbins or others who are in the leadership space and they're so focused on creating passion and creating motivation for people. The idea of doing what you love sounds great, but as you indicated, it's not always possible. So I don't know if you've really grappled with this because it sounds like you've loved what you've done from the beginning. So maybe you never had to really deal with it. But how do you think somebody who doesn't necessarily love what they do develop increased interest, increased passion in a way that's going to allow them to sort of move on to the next thing and get focused on it because I also love to do this and I'm also excited for that next task. So even though the first task didn't quite work out the way I wanted to yet, I still have the ability to move on to the next thing. I think what people have to do, which is something that is very important in leadership, is to look at the big picture. And what I mean by that is the following. You may have an overarching goal, which is to develop a new division or a new program. And some of the tasks that are required to get that done may be difficult and burdensome. And some may be emotionally challenging. For example, you might switch enterprise systems. And so the talent you needed for the old system doesn't transport to the new system. You have to get rid of some people and hire people who are new. That's both personally difficult and challenging because of the time it takes. What I've done in those situations is I focus on the big picture and basically say, look, we made a decision to go to this new enterprise software system because we had to, because it's going to make things better for the company. And these things I have to do along the way are things I'd rather not do. But if I focus on the big picture and understand that the big picture mission is something I really do support and do really do need then I can try to, quote, love the individual tasks, even if they are naturally unpleasant. That's a great answer. I, I'm seeing, I'm sort of imagining what you're talking about as you're describing it, you know, keeping that big sense of what you really want to accomplish. And as an educator, I'm almost like mapping it, having the vision, having the mission kind of in the center there, and then all the tasks around it, but keeping those tasks very much connected to that primary goal. Because I think that when people do see what all of this effort will ultimately accomplish, what all of these tasks will ultimately achieve, even if individual ones like you talked about are unpleasant and maybe actually painful because you're talking about perhaps uh, issues of um, uh, removing personnel or uh, reorganizing in some type of way, which is difficult for everybody, but you still keep yourself and your team focused around the big prize, that could really be a great motivator. Exactly. So, Alan, let's talk a few about a few other things that I think would be relevant to you that, that also I think is important because I know that you live in the greater New York City area. Your office is in Manhattan. I've had the opportunity to visit it before, uh, but you've probably got a decent commute on your hands each way uh, to and from your, your, uh, from your home. So tell us, uh, what is the best way, in your opinion, to make productive use of your commute time? Well, I could tell you what I did in my old job. 
because I'm in an unusual situation in my new one. I uh, sometimes drove, I sometimes took the train. And what I try to do is divide my time between work-related tasks and, quote, relaxing, although relaxing sometimes meant keeping up with the news or keeping up with the journal. And I found that by dedicating part of a commute to physical and mental refreshment or renewal and part of it to getting work tasks done, that that was very effective. I can't say that I ever enjoyed the commute, but I often felt when I got off the train that I had accomplished a good deal, both personally and professionally. I can't say that I ever made a schedule, but I sort of based it on what my work and personal needs were during the commute. Got it. The timing of that comment is quite interesting because I'm actually in the process now of putting together a white paper specifically on the topic of stress. And you talked about using your commute to a degree, at least for relaxation and kind of unwinding mentally and all of that. Any other tips that you might have for busy executives such as yourself, who've got so many demands and responsibilities to deal with, to hold on to, to sort of stay in control, to manage stress so that it doesn't become all consuming? So I dedicate about an hour a day to exercise, except in unusual circumstances. And my one rule is I I do two things. I do it early in the morning. And the second is I don't take my phone or a device with me, unlike almost everybody else out with me. Nice. So I do it early so it doesn't interfere that much with the day. But those people who work with me know that essentially from 7.30 to 8.30 in the morning or 7 to 8.30 in the morning, I'm not available. And unlike when I was a physician, in my current position, that's achievable. And that has both physical benefits of exercise, uh, but it also generally is mentally refreshing. And most days, I don't listen to podcasts, sorry about this one, or do anything else academic or intellectual. I actually intentionally try to dissociate from work-related things during that time, and even from uh, continuing education or Jewish education, I try to dissociate that from what I'm doing so I can feel that I've got stress relieved and it's been incredibly effective. Oh, that's very powerful. Coming back just for a moment to the book that I mentioned before, he also does talk about the idea of having your block of time, I don't know if he prescribes a specific amount of time, where you're going to really work on the important things of your day, but also to mentally sort of shut off, like you talked about turning off your phone, uh, becoming disconnected in order to really maximize your brain's capacity to produce when it's time to produce. And I think sometimes we we have this association in our mind, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's from other messaging that we've picked up, that we just need to be busy all the time and that somehow busyness can be uh, seen as a correlation to success, you know, however one defines it. But oftentimes we're really not maximizing our production with all of that busyness. And in fact, we're setting ourselves back. So it's really great to hear. And I wanted to, one last question, if I may, before we shift gears, uh, stay in the space, if you will, of relaxation, of mental and emotional, and shift it a little bit over to spiritual. I know you're an Orthodox Jew and that you're a religious person. When and how do you connect? And more specifically, how does your spirituality impact your role as a leader? In my case, it's pretty straightforward and easy. What I view as spirituality as an Orthodox Jew 
is a mission to build a better world. And the ritual that people often associate with Orthodox Judaism is, of course, a crucial part of it. But the ritual is part of a defined mission. Uh, and that mission very much overlaps with the mission of Turo College and University System. So what I find is that what I feel is part of my personal religious life as a mission to follow a set of precepts that we think will build and believe will build a better world spills over to what I do in the work and leadership environment. Uh, and that mission actually is important, not just to me, but it pervades the institution, even among people who aren't religious or observant or aren't Jewish. We have, I think, a unique organization in the sense that we're very mission driven. And the people who work at Turo, by and large, do it because they believe in what we're doing and believe in our mission to use education as a way to improve people's lives and improve the world. And so it's a relatively easy transition for me. And I don't view it as two separate spheres, but rather trying to infuse that mission in everything I do, both personally and professionally. And as a, as a Turo graduate, as I mentioned before, I can really speak to that. It, I think it is pervasive. And you have a beautiful thing going, and uh, I hope to uh, continue to personally to benefit from it and the community at large. So now we're going to shift gears, and we're going to do our rapid-fire segment. Uh, a couple of things we'd love to learn a little bit more about you, Alan. Uh, number one, your favorite hobby. Reading. What are you not very good at, considering the so many things that you are really good at? Anything musical. Shirt, pants, and socks. Which one goes on first? Shirt. Sure. And you talked about reading before. So tell us a little bit about the kinds of books that you read. I read almost everything. I, I read novels. I read nonfiction books. One of the things that I do outside of work, the, I'm only on a couple of other boards because of time constraints. But one of the organizations I, I'm on the board of is the Jewish Book Council, which is a great organization that promotes literacy. Very important. So um, tell us, is there anything that you'd like to share with our readers uh, a little bit more about you, how they can get in touch with you, uh, or anything else about the work that you're involved with. I'll just say a few words about Turo because I've talked about the mission. We're, as you mentioned, a Jewish-sponsored institution. We have 19,000 students, although the majority of our students are not Jewish. We think the mission pervades what we do. There are three or four things that are unique about Turo. One is the mission. The second is that we're very focused on making undergraduate tuition affordable. For a private college, our tuition is very low to try to keep people having opportunities to proceed in the workforce. We're focused on being creative and entrepreneurial in what we do. And we're geographically and academically diverse, culturally diverse, socioeconomically diverse, and racially diverse as an institution. And we try to put all those values in perspective to fulfill our mission. And I actually believe in it even a lot more than I did eight years ago when I started at Turo. So I go to work every day excited about what we're doing. Yeah, I can feel that excitement. So tell, tell people how they can find out more about Turo, their website, any other information you'd like to share. Well, the website is Turo.edu. It describes our multiplicity of academic programs, as well as some success stories of our students, faculty, and staff, including some of our research interests that are rapidly escalating. And um, I'm happy to take, get questions or messages from people uh, at uh, alan.kadish at or on LinkedIn. 
Beautiful. One last life lesson that you could leave us with. Stay optimistic. There are a lot of things going on today that seem negative. But again, it's the message of looking at the big picture. If you look at where the world is today as opposed to where it was historically, levels of poverty are at historic lows. Life expectancy is at historic highs. Infant mortality is historic lows. Standard of living at historic highs. Human beings in our society are more resilient than we get credit for. That doesn't mean we should ignore the problems and the challenges, but stay optimistic. That is a great final lesson, and it actually ties in beautifully to the leadership quote for today, which I chose for you, but I didn't realize how well you would deliver on it. The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires by William Arthur Ward. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you could lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives social proof and encourages more folks to listen. Social Media Junkies, please share this recording with your networks and tag me as well. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Naftali Hoff and on Twitter as at Impactful Coach. Alan, thank you so much again for getting on the show with us today. I've learned so much from you, and I really hope that people will follow up with you to learn more about Turo and the great work that you're doing. It's really been a pleasure, and wishing you and your family, as we record this the day before uh, the Jewish Festival of Sukkot, a very happy holiday, and looking forward to future opportunities to learn from you as well. Thank you, and I very much appreciate the chance to be on the show. Thank you again. Have a great day. 